0: Corinthians. And uh, we finished the book of Romans. And hopefully today, as we try to tie all these books together, you'll begin to see some uh, more about how to put your Bible together. And that's really what uh, we're really after here. Um, You know, there has to be a structure to the Word of God. And learning that structure sometimes uh, is the most important thing. I find, and I found this to be true all my life in ministry, that most people uh, when studying the Bible, they, they, don't, they forsake getting the structure down and just try to get into the books of the Bible. Uh, you should never study any book in the Bible without thoroughly understanding the background of that book as far as what that book is, represents, how it's laid out, it's viewed. It's just key, and that's part of the structure, and that's what we're doing here. Uh, and now today we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians Now, Paul writes this book around Acts chapter 20. We've come through the book of Acts. We did the same thing with all of the books of the Bible, focusing on how Christ is portrayed, and that's what we're doing here. And he writes this book around 56, 57 AD. That'll be around Acts chapter 20, verse 31, right at the close uh, of his stay there at Ephesus. And for more information on that, you'll find uh, in the first 18 verses of the book of Acts, you'll find, again, where there's some more information laid out and given along those lines. Now, Paul writes to seven churches. And of the seven churches that he writes to, each church has something that we can really glean for not only ourselves personally, but also for uh, our church. And pastors should look at those and then try to apply that to their own church. But of all the churches that Paul writes to, uh, the church at Corinth, the one we're about to look at is the worst of them all. And it really shows for you and for me the number one danger that can destroy a church. And that is simply one thing, the lack of biblical spiritual growth. Churches have to continue to grow. And uh, there has to be, always has to be levels of spiritual growth that a church goes through. And of course, the church only goes through them as people goes through them because, you know, churches are made up of people. A while back, I, I taught you a lesson um, on the seven stages of spiritual growth. And I showed you how that uh, uh, in your own personal life that you actually, and it, re, it laid out in the Bible, how you actually go through seven basic stages. You start out as a newborn baby just saved, And we have a number of folks that are right there now. You just got saved. And then you continue to grow, and you move into what the Bible calls little children. And uh, then you move into what the Bible calls children. Then you move into what the Bible calls the status of, like, a young man. And then you move into the—and I think the key stage is the next stage, and that's the father stage. Because that's when—you know, all of these things, from a baby to a little child to children to a young man— they're all a growth process, but finally, when you get to the process of, of a father in the Bible, that poor to spiritual growth, that carries with it a tremendous responsibility and accountability that somebody has. You know, all you guys that have been gotten married, you know that, you know, before you're married, you're, you can go hunting all you want, fishing all you want, pretty much do whatever you want. Once you find a girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, you're somewhat limited to that, but you can still pretty much do what you want to do. After you get married, you're limited a little bit more, but you can still pretty much do what you want to do. Once you have children, game's over. You're done now with life. And uh, your children now dictate everything that you do. And uh, that's just the way that it is. And the reason for that is is because you now have the added responsibility of not just a wife. You've got the added responsibility of children now, and they, uh, there's a tremendous amount of accountability and responsibility that goes with that. In a spiritual way, that would be you coming into a church. And I really think that this is where our church is at right now. And uh, our church uh, has grown in the last eight years, and we are at the place where uh, a host of people now are taking responsibility of ministry, taking responsibility of working with people, taking responsibility of running areas of this church. That's the aspect of a father. Now you're 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 taking on the responsibility of a family in this case, family of our church, and you're working through it. And then the the last two we talked about are the elders and elders in the Bible are someone who, through process of time, they grow to the point where they're really valuable to the pastor and uh, and work through uh, and work on a very high level and helping you know manage the church, run the things that are in it. And then the agent and the agent would be someone who comes to the point where. Uh, they uh, they really now have, you know, been saved 50, 60 years. They have a lot of wisdom. They may not be able to play softball anymore, but whenever you have an issue that you have to get some wisdom on, they're the people that you talk to. And you're going to find, as I said, that not only do you and I as Christians go through these seven stages, but churches will go through these seven stages. And each of these seven churches that Paul's right to are really a picture and make up the character and personality of, of churches. I've spent a lot of time over the last 30, 40 years, you know, being in churches, talking to pastors, and being associated with churches. And, you know, maybe you don't see it because of your limited uh, availability to it, but I, I see these characteristics in churches all the time. And that's because that, that churches model these seven churches that you have here. So it's very important to be able to see that. And like I said, at the end of the day, churches are made up of people. Some When you have a church made up of strong people, you have a strong church. When you have a church made up of weak people, then you have a weak church. When you have a problem made up of problematic people, then you have a problematic church. And uh, they're all found in, in the writings of Paul. Now, in Paul's day, the city of Corinth was a chief Roman province. And um, you're going to find that uh, it's a providence of a city which you find mentioned a lot in the Bible, Aichea. And it was a great city of commerce. It had a harbor on both sides. Therefore, it was a great seaport. No doubt, the great influx of wealth and possessions and prosperity probably had much to do with the church having the problems that they have. In fact, the name Corinthians itself means the ornaments. And in most cases, even today, and you know this is true if you work with people, it's the ornaments of this world, the, the things that we have to have, our possessions that we value so much that really keep us from many times growing spiritually. And I'm sure that that had a tremendous uh, impact on this church. It's interesting also to note that the word ornament is a kind of a unique word. In First Peter chapter 3, verse 4, uh, Peter tells us that the ornaments that a Christian should have are the ornaments of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. And of course, great price running that back to Proverbs chapter 31. But this is certainly not the ornaments that the church at Corinth is involved in. This church, Paul he starts this church, but it never really grows. It never, the leadership never really grows. The church becomes in time a carnal church. Uh, run by a bunch of spiritual, yet they're saved, babies, that as all babies, they stray from the Bible doctrine and they start to teach all kinds of heresy, which in time begins to cause all kinds of problems, which again in time, the devil always gets into details and of course causes much damage. So those are the things that you look at. You know, in every chapter, and this is something you want to remember, and there's some great lessons here for us. In every chapter, Paul deals with at least one, and many times multiple spiritual issues that they have gotten messed up on and tries to bring them back to the Word of God to get them back where they really need to stay focused. And uh, it's, a, it's a great study because it shows you a little bit about Paul's mindset. Paul deals with his church with a very stern hand, but yet, as a father, but yet you can, you can see his love for them, his care for them, and yet he loves them enough that he tells them the truth, he holds them accountable, uh, just like any parent with any three- or four-year-old child as you're trying to grow that up. You know, you could fast-forward this for a moment, and we talked about how that this church and all these churches mirror other churches. Uh, Basically, the church of Corinth is mirrored today by the modern charismatic movement and a lot of Baptist churches. And uh, this church, uh, like most uh, charismatics today and many, many Baptists, they have absolutely no knowledge of the Bible. They have no, the Bible is not their final authority. They base everything that they do on how they feel. And, you know, your emotions and your feelings change from day to day to day. I mean, for some people, when they get up in the morning, you know, and the sun's out, they have a wonderful day. If the sun's in and it's cloudy, they have a terrible day. You can't run through life on your emotion. That's why the Bible is so important. You learn to build your your relationship uh, on the Word of God, and uh, you know, and then you don't have to worry about what your feelings are because you operate by biblical principles. And the book shows you what happens when you run it on your emotions and and you operate on your feelings. You know, I a couple of Thursday nights ago, somebody asked a question about. Uh, um, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, and, and I, 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 I put things in a little, in sometimes a little three-point outline for myself to remember them. And I showed you the concept, if you want to remember how you're going to be dealt with at the judgment seat of Christ and how God deals with you now in your sin, just remember that simple little formula, sinner, son, and servant. And I went through that night, and I showed you how that before you got saved, God looked at you as a sinner, Once you get saved, God doesn't look at you as a sinner anymore. Now he looks at you as his son. And when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, he's not going to judge you as a sinner, nor is he going to judge you as his son. Those judgments were taken care of down here. No, now he'll judge you as a servant. And it's easy to uh, take complicated doctrines and and put them in that kind of little uh, three-point outline, you know, sinner, son, and sinner, sinner, son, and servant. I've talked to you before when we started to focus on ministry in the church, three little concepts, look behind, look around, look ahead. And in every decision you make in life or any major thing that you do, that's what you ought to follow. You ought to look behind, you ought to look around you, and then you look to the future. And that's the three dimensions that we have to live in in life. Most people are very one-dimensional in their life, and that's why they get into problems. Well, when it comes to operating like the church of Corinth, here's another little one. And I've given you this before, but there's always new people here. And it it's simply faith, fact, and feeling. And that's what you want to follow. You know what? You want to have faith. But you don't have faith in your feelings because your feelings will deceive you. Your feelings will change. So you've got to have faith in something that does not change, something that is everlasting. That'll be the facts, the Bible principles, the Word of God. Once you have your faith in the facts of the Bible, then the facts of the Bible, the principles of the Bible, they dictate your feelings. And this church here, in many churches today, and certainly charismatic movement, it's faith, feelings, and no facts. And you have a lot of people who have faith. They're saved, but they don't have the facts. So therefore, their, their faith is in what they feel, the spookiness of God told me to do this, or I got this feeling, or this or that. And of course, that's always dangerous you got to have, a, and I tell you this all the time, you got to have a biblical principle for everything that you do, and you're going to find that this church, the church at Corinth, is not operating like that. They're a bunch of spiritual babies, and babies always have similar characteristics that, you know, they have to be constantly taken care of and watched, baby Christians too. Babies always make tremendous messes. They don't mean to. You know, uh, in raising your children and training up your children. You know, you don't. If they're little and they just spill their milk, you don't get on them for that. They just, babies make messes. And young Christians make messes. Babies throw up a lot, spit up a lot. And, of course, uh, people have problems in their life. They got saved. They come out of a bad whatever, and it takes a while sometimes to get worked through that. So they spit up a lot. They have to talk about it, deal with it over and over again until they get it out of their system. And uh, you always have to be aware of where babies are and, uh, you know, because they get into things all the time that will hurt them. That's why if you go into some homes, you see the little electrical plugs, they put those little flat things in them so the kids can't stick their pencils in them, you know. Talk about a charismatic movement experience, that'll do it for your kid no matter what age he is. Now, they're always sticking things in receptacles, you know. You get 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 a spoon and he's eating lunch and next thing you know, he's off running around and you know, in there, and if you get that spoon. He sees that hole there. He thinks, well, this is gonna fit in there, and he puts that metal spoon in there. And uh, you know, and uh, he will uh, have a, quite a vision of God and everything in between. You know, it's the same way. That's why they childproof medicine. Kids are drawn to color, and you get medicine that looks colored medicine. They see it. They're gonna. They're gonna. They're gonna. They're gonna think it's candy. So they childproof things, and you know, you gotta do that with kids, little babies. You know, and you gotta you gotta be careful with young Christians because they make some of the same mistakes. A young baby's favorite word is no. No is everything. I play with my little, you know, little Macy, and when she gets in one of those moods, everything is no. I mean, you you like it here? No. You wanna you like grandpa? No. Do you like buddy? No. Do you like Otis? No. You like grandma? Yes. Well that always bothers me, you know, a little bit. I said to her, Do you want to go home? No. Do you like it here? No. Do you know what you want? No. First smart thing she said all day. You see, that's their favorite word. And that's just where it's at. They don't know any better. And then the second thing is they all think the world revolves around them. Because their second favorite word is mine. This is mine. And of course, you can see that in babies, and then you see that in, you see that in baby Christians. You know, you heard me say many, many times that you don't raise children; you train children. Uh, and they come out, and they're babies, you know. And in time, given time, they grow up. But you don't raise children; you train children. Proverbs twenty-two, verse six: Train up a child in the way you should go. In some cases, train up a child, and the way they'll go. But anyway, you, you train them up. Train them up. You know, and you also, uh, you know, as a pastor, you don't raise up a congregation; you got to train them up. And uh, I, I, you know, pastors. They, a guy was, talked to a guy on the phone this week, and he was excited because uh, three or four or five pastors invited him to go to a pastor's getaway where they, where, you know, he was so excited that he got asked to go. And, and those things just leave me flat. I mean, I, you know, because I know what they are. You know, pastors, they, all they do when they get together is they complain about their people, and they complain about the problem they got in their churches and the problem they got, and they just babiesly cry in each other's beer. That's all they do. They just whine about, well, I don't like this, and I got this problem, somebody else got this problem. And I, I look at that, and I'm saying to myself, I don't have any desire to hang out with those guys, first of all. If I'm going to hang out with anybody, I just soon hang out with you. Uh, they, they leave me, because the truth of the matter is, whatever problems you have in your church, I don't care what they are, whatever problematic people you have in your church, you have raised them to be that way. And if you've allowed that kind of conduct, I mean, Paul didn't allow this kind of conduct. He comes down and basically slaps their hand here. And in a couple places, he kicks them someplace else. But he doesn't just let it happen because he knows that he is responsible for them. He started this church. He probably won the leaders to Christ, and now he's got to take responsibility for it. And they don't always like it. In fact, they don't like it at all here. We'll try to see if we get that far today. And uh, But that's just the way that it is. I had a pastor one time that I knew that was a great missionary in Central America, and he had a very, very, very large church in Central America. And it looked to be a fantastic work because back then, you know, it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was easy to win people to Christ and the gospel was really wide open down there. And I had made many, many trips down there and saw that church, preached into that church, knew the people in the church, and it always bothered me just a little bit that, that this guy would get hundreds of people saved, the church would grow. They'd, they'd go out and have incredible soul-winning opportunities, and people would get saved, and they'd come to that church. But I never saw anybody ever taking them, helping them, and getting them to grow. He didn't do it. He never spent one thing, one, one hour helping anybody grow. He just pastored the church. And what happened was, after about eight or nine years of that, the church got large, and they basically, because nobody ever discipled them, nobody ever trained them, nobody ever worked with them, and they put these young Christians in places of leadership, well, you think the devil won't get into those details? And what happened is, in time, this church rose up against that pastor and basically threw him out, accused him of all kinds of things, and just, you know, broke his heart. But it all I looked at that, and I thought to myself, Well, I can go right back to the first time I was down there, and I got an uneasy feeling because here were all these people getting saved. Everybody was talking about getting people saved, but nobody was doing anything with them. And you can't blame that on anybody but the guy in charge because it's our responsibility as leaders to make sure that the baby Christians grow, that... That, uh, that this church does not become like the church at Corinth. Our church, the foundation of our church is and always will be built on the backs of men and women that over the last 8 years or 20 years or 30 years, they have grown to the place of spiritual maturity. They're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. They still make mistakes. I still make mistakes. But they understand that you can never stop growing spiritually. It's the new ones come in and immediately you start working with them to help them because it's a never-ending process. And, you know, and from each one of these churches, the seven that Paul writes, uh, we'll learn something for our own church and for ourselves too. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a great book on how not to build a church. It's a great book on how not to build a ministry. Now, I told you, I told you that uh, when, we, uh, when we get done with the New Testament books of the Bible, and then we'll have a couple of weeks or a month or so of throwback stuff and go back and look at, I said throwback, not throw up. We'll go back and look at some of the old sermons and we'll, we'll, we'll preach some of those. Uh, I want to teach you the book of 2 Corinthians. And, um, you know, so when we're done with 1 Corinthians, we're basically going to skip 2 Corinthians and then move into the next book because I want to save that, no use doing it twice, because we're going to teach that book verse by verse. I'll tell you why it's so important. These two books are great contrasting books. In 1 Corinthians, we have a situation where they're all messed up, and uh, they don't really want to do what's right. Paul writes them a pretty harsh letter. He gets on them in a, uh, many, many times. Then, someplace in the process, they want to get right. And so then he writes them 2 Corinthians and in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter by chapter, he really deals with the issues and teaches them how to minister. So the book is a great contrasting book. In chapter, in the 1 Corinthians, it shows you how not to do the ministry and deals with all the issues they get messed up in. In the book of 2 Corinthians, it shows you how to do the ministry. And 2 Corinthians is the handbook of ministry for you and for me. And we're going to go into that in great length because that's where our church is at right now and you need to learn, you that are already ministering need to learn to minister better, and you who, you who need to learn to minister need to take these things and begin to let them do in your life. God is, you know, I hear every week from you how the opportunities, how the opportunities are open, wide open. Chrissy Christensen was telling me today that, you know, with all the problems that they've got in her family uh, with, with illnesses and all this happened, and even her friends that are around there, that now everybody is calling them and asking them what they do, what they should do. And it's a great, and you don't get a better open door than that. You can drive an 18-wheeler through that door. And people will search you out, even if they don't say anything to you. It goes back to that old thing, they're always watching your life. When time, bad times come, they will search you out. I looked at this the funerals we've had here in the last year with uh, you know, the Bradford's. Uh, mom dying, and and then, you know, uh, uh, Casey's grandma dying. And just to know the tremendous opportunities that those families had. Incredible, absolutely incredible. And, you know, I get up there and preach, you know, and and lay all that out, and everybody says, wow, you really, you did a, but you know what? All I did is take what you already gave me, you did all the work, Man, you were out there teaching them the Bible. Kyle and Casey out there teaching the Bible. They'd, you know, Donnie and Jared and that family was working with her mom and, and, and everything, and you guys did the work. All I did was back cleanup. All I did was come in at the end and tie it all together. But again, you're going to see that's what makes a church work. It's a team effort. Nobody cares who gets the credit. Nobody cares who gets the glory other than God. We just all work together. That's what the church at Corinth could not do. And that was where their problem was. And uh, so we're going to skip Second Corinthians when we get to it after this one, and then we'll come back, and we'll really hit that one really well. Now, what I'm going to do with this book is I'm going to focus on some of the main issues. I'm not going to attempt to try to teach it, uh, you know, verse by verse, uh, I'm not going to try to, I'm just going to take each chapter. I'm going to talk about some of the major issues that they're having, make the applications to where we're at today, and, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll see what it does. Now, this book, I told you, Christ is portrayed in this book, and all everything comes back to this theme. The theme of this book and Christ is portrayed as Christ our Lord, and you're going to find that that's, uh, that's exactly what they're not doing. And a lot of people today uh, use that term, you know, I hear it all the time, you know, if if uh, if Jesus Christ isn't Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. That sounds really cute. I like that. You know, that would be a song. Probably is. And, you know, and everybody uses those little flippant phrases, but most people don't know what the word really means. You know what the definitive verse on Jesus being Lord in your life is? It's in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. And the definitive verse simply says this. Jesus himself said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? That's the definitive verse on Lordship in the Bible, simply doing what he told you to do. Church at Corinth is not doing that. Paul's trying to get them to do that. Luke chapter six verse forty-six. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? All right, now let's 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 start this here and see how far we get today. And uh, it it talks about in chapter one. We want to look at First Corinthians chapter one. Let's look at the first couple of verses here. This is something that that you know I debated rather even to throw this in, but. You know, some of you upper-level people, maybe this will help you. He says in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and uh, Sothenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is in verse 2. And I've talked to you about the structure of the Bible. We saw how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the historical books. The book of Acts then was the uh, book that uh, kind of transitioned you through. And then we saw how Romans was the book that where Paul, now that the church is fully established, laid down the teachings. And every, everything in the Bible is important. And when I, uh, when I come through here years ago, I immediately saw something here. Because starting in 1 Corinthians, it says, under the church of God, which is in, at Corinth. In every church he writes to, he says to the churches or to the church ad, or to those that be in the church or whatever, he makes it very clear that he's addressing churches. But if you're paying attention, he doesn't say that in Romans, though I know historically Romans is addressed to a church. I know that. But he's trying to show us something here by the absence of that phrase. And what he's showing us here is exactly the pattern by which the Bible is laying itself out. We had the four Gospels, which is the historical section, the Acts, which is the transitional section, and then we come to the books that is not just—it's the doctrinal statement for all Christianity, not just the Church at Rome. It's for all Christians. So he leaves out the reference to the church at Rome and just simply says in verse 7, to all that be in Rome. Now, the second thing is this. This is the beauty of the Bible. This may not mean anything to you, but things like this are important to me. When I go back to Daniel chapter 2, I find that in Daniel's image that when the Roman Empire comes into play in uh, in uh, 100 B.C. or thereabouts, from that point on, right up to the second coming of Christ, Rome is is always in power. For the next 300 years, she's in power through the pagan Roman system, and then she comes back to world power through the papal Roman system. But she's never out of power. So it's amazing to me that when Paul wrote this, he had the insight, at least the Holy Spirit of God gave him the insight, that he wrote this to all that be in Rome because you and I today, you and I today are in Rome as far as the world power running everything. And so he's showing us that this book of Romans is a book that lays out to all Christians who are under in Rome, because Rome is the dominant power of the world, has been since 100 B.C. And then in the next book, when he starts to directly uh, apply to these churches what he gave in Romans, that's when he begins to say to the churches. And like I said, that may not mean nothing to you, but it's important to me, and I thought, Maybe some of you out there would want to have that and just put that in. It helps the whole format. You see, Roman lays down our doctrine to all churches who will build ministries, not just the church at Rome. So there's no mention of that in Romans, but it's kind of an incredible thing, and it just kind of carries it all the way through and shows you. Now, in chapter 1, we begin to see uh, one of the many issues that this church has. And I want to begin reading now, again, in chapter 1. And now that we've got the first two verses kind of tacked down for you, let's pick it up in verse 10. Here's, here's what he says. Now, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that you be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chiloli. That there be contentions among you. Now, uh, the, the, the first couple of verses here, we find the two words that will destroy any church. And it's always in the midst of babies in a church. And the first one is in verse 10, it's divisions. The second one is in verse 11, and that's contentions. And those two things will destroy any church that is not a spiritually mature church. The Bible tells you very clearly how to deal when divisions come up in your church. You know, it's not going to be a church that is not prone at some point of having some division within it. It's how you handle it biblically. or You don't handle it; that is where it goes. And contentions—hey, there are always going to be issues between God's people. There always is. Uh, you know, I tell people all the time—you know—that uh, you, you know you 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 necess- not necessarily out of you know. Uh, work for somebody that's in your church or work for them, do something for them because most of the time it doesn't work out and then it becomes a a church issue and you're better off just not to do that. Sometimes it works, but, you know, many times it does not. And, uh, you know, contentions are going to be wherever you go. But at the same time, there's a biblical process to work and deal with contentions. And the answer there, as you come on down through there in verse 10, is he says that they need to be joined together uh, the same mind with the same judgment. And that simply is that we use that today in the in, the, in the vernacular. We talk about everybody being on the same page. That's what that means. The mind is the Bible itself. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the mind that we're to have is the God's mind. The judgment we're to have is also God's judgment through the Word of God. In other words, the biblical principles being laid out and by which you run and deal with the issues that come up. There's never going to be a church that does not have issues. What happens in churches, either the pastor's weak or the leadership is weak, and they just weren't willing to take the Bible and deal with the issues. That's what they've got at the church at Corinth. And, of course, you know, Bible principles are the key. I say it all the time. you got to have a Bible principle for everything that you do of any major impact? I mean, uh, you, you know, the, it's just safe way to, to do business. I mean, uh, in this, in your life, it's just a very easy thing to do. So then he goes on, and here's the problem. Here's the problem. We got divisions, and we got contentions. Here's what it's led to. Oh, this is a great church. Now, this I say, every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the house of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. Can't remember what he's saying. Who else he baptized? For Christ, here's the key. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross to them that perish foolishness, but it us that are saved, it is the power of God. We kind of used that verse last week, didn't we? Now look at verse 17 and 18. Here's the problem they've got. You know what they're doing? They're tagging spirituality to who baptized that person. And some people were baptized. I mean, there's a spiritual pecking order here if you can't see it. Some said, I am of Christ. Now, we know that Christ didn't baptize anybody himself, but his disciples baptized, so that's of Christ. He'd be number one on your list. In other words, if Jesus baptized you, boy, you're really spiritual. The second one on the list would be Paul. I mean, Paul was a pretty high-up guy here. And some said, I'm of Christ. Some said, I'm of Paul. Some said, I am of Apollos. Now, Apollos is a pretty good guy. He's got a church in his home over there in Acts chapter 18 and 19, pretty good guy. And then a guy that most people never hear of, he'd be the fourth guy on the list, that's Cephas. Now, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're tagging some kind of spirituality. I'm more spiritual because I was baptized by Jesus. You're more spiritual, but you were, you're not as spiritual because you were baptized by Paul. You're not as spiritual either because you were baptized by Apollos, and you ain't nobody because nobody knew who Cephas is. It's like I'm six foot, I'm five foot, I'm four foot, and you're three foot. And, of course, that's ludicrous. And that's what Paul's dealing with here. But that's where they're at. That's where they're at. Now, you would think today in the modern 20th century, 21st century now, that you would think that God's people would be bigger than that. Let me tell you something. I've watched churches split and, and fight over the color of choir robes. I've watched them split over the decision to get choir robes. And once you get the frickus down over the fact that we're going to get choir robes, then you have another knockdown, dragout drag-out fight over what color they are. And I've known people who have left churches over the color of the choir robes they got. And it's stuff like that. It's stuff like that. And here's the church that it, it's very evident that this church's emphasis is on the flesh and not the power of God. And it's a thing where, you know, they're, you know, and this is what happens in baby churches. This is the number one thing that I've hated about churches, Christianity, and pastors to such a degree that venom comes out of my mouth when I start to talk about it. So you front row people are in for a poisoning this morning. And that is the idea of politics in churches. Politics happen in churches because baby Christians don't grow. We've got the pecking order right here. We see where the real spiritual ones were baptized by Jesus. The next spiritual people were done by Paul. The next one were done by Apollos, and everybody else fell in under, under uh, Cephas. And Paul says, I can't even remember who I baptized. And then he says, who were you baptized for? And he comes back to the fact that it's the preaching that is important. And this is where, in the great chapter where he talks about the fact that they make the, or in the great book where they make the word of God of none effect because they're focusing on things that are absolutely ridiculous. But it happens all the time. And you find in most churches where there's a power pyramid and uh, usually the pastor's not at the top of it. You know, most churches at a point where they're run by so many committees and so many deacons and so many this and so many that, That every that, and what you get is you get your power base. We were going to a church, a little church, years ago up in uh, Iowa, someplace, and we were doing discipleship where I took a team in to teach a church how to disciple their people. And this church was a dying church, this church was dead on its feet. And what happened was, as we got there, people got excited, and where a church was running. 30 people on Sunday morning that night for the discipleship, by word of mouth, they had 120-some people from that town come into that church. Now, I would think if you were the pastor of leadership in that church, that'd kind of make you happy. We were asked to leave the next day and not finish discipleship. Pastor sheepishly come up and he said, I mean, he had no guts at all. And he, you know, he basically said, well, we, guys, we're going to have to shut this down to deacons. And I said, well, who's in charge of this thing? You or them? And he said, I said, I don't want to cause a problem. But I said, my people have paid a lot of money. We've come up here. You know what? Uh, we got an investment here. At least I'm going to give an explanation. And so the, one of the deacons chimed in. And he said, yeah, we don't want you guys here anymore. And I said, well, what's the deal? And he said, well, it's real simple. He says, well, if we get all these people coming to this church, how are we going to control them? That's what he told me. And I said, well, I wish you'd have told me that yesterday morning because you don't have to ask me to leave because I want nothing to do with this place. We still had two or three days to go. I forget what we did. I think we went to Atlantic City or something. I don't know where we went. But, but it was a thing where it's, that's what I'm talking about, the power of politics in churches. I hate it. You know what? You don't get to who you I've known churches where if you made $50 million a year, you know, pastor catered to you and everything that he did. If you were just a blue-collar worker out there slugging it out, he wouldn't even talk to you. He wouldn't even know who you were. You could join a church in bushel, bushel baskets load. He doesn't care. He gets one guy who makes a million dollars a year or $500,000 a year or whatever. He will cater to him like he is the king of Siam. And that's politics. And that's politics. And that's what happens in baby churches. They start to tag some kind of spiritual relative. It's just kind of stupid stuff that, as he says in verse 17, makes the cross of Christ of none effect. It just deflates the whole thing. And it's very evident that this church is emphasis on the flesh. And, uh, you know, pastor doesn't have, you know, any special powers. He doesn't have any special control over anybody. All he does is enforce what the Bible says. He either does a good job at that or he does a lousy job at that. And the deacons or the whoever, the elders, whatever, hey, the more you get, the more power you get, the more responsibility you have, the more you ought to see yourself as a servant, not as a Lord. But boy, we get that thing backwards in just about everything we do. And the church at Corinth had done it too. That in chapter one, here's the second issue, two issues in this chapter. Let's pick it up in verse 25 of chapter one. And all this ties together. But here's another great concept they cannot get. Now, here's sarcasm. I love it when God gets sarcastic. He does it several places in the Bible. I love it. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weaknesses of God is stronger than men. Now, that's sarcasm. First of all, God is not foolish. Second of all, God is not weak. But what he's saying is, and the vernacular on this is, you get somebody and you look at somebody and you say, well, I could whip you with one hand tied behind my back, you know, or, well, there's 10 of you and there's one of me. Sounds like it's a pretty even fight, you know? Something like that. What he's saying is that if God was foolish, he's not, but if God was foolish, he's not, but if God was foolish, in the very worst foolish day that God would have, he'd be 100 million light years smarter than you are on your best day. Now, God is not weak. God is not weak. But if God was weak, he's not. He created everything in one week, but God is not weak. I mean, he, he's, he, he's he, but if he was weak on his weakest day, he would be a 100 billion light years stronger than you on your best day. That's what he's saying. He's bringing this to a point because here's what they're doing. You see, you're calling, brethren, how that ye, uh, not many wise men after the flesh, not many, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, the things that are not, uh, are not to bring to naught the things that are. What he's saying here in light of what we all just already read, he's saying God is never impressed by how spiritual we think we are. He never is. The church at Corinth was puffing themselves up, making themselves much more spiritual than they really were, trying to appear to anyhow, based on the aspect of who baptized who. And he comes back here and he says, hey, guys, he says, you got it all backwards. He says, real Christianity is the more you know the Bible, the more you know how much you don't know about the Bible. And the more God gives you to do and more God does with you, the more unworthy you should see yourself. You don't get yourself brought up to this aspect. I got a text from a guy here a couple months ago who's one of the most prideful, self-righteous egotists I've ever met in my life. And him and I don't get along very well, and as you might be surprised. And he sent me a text, and I won't go into the whole text, but at the beginning of the text, he prefaced what he wanted to say by, he said, because I am such a humble man. And I thought to myself, you mean you were a humble man? You know what? If you're humble, you don't know you're humble. And you realize that the moment you recognize how humble you are, you just lost your humility, whatever it was. The arrogance of somebody saying, because I'm such a humble man. Well, if you're humble, you don't know you're humble. In reality, you're the most arrogant, asinine, you're the most ridiculous stick for a pastor I've ever met in my life. But in your mind, you're humble, like Clint Eastwood, you know, you're a legend in your own mind. And the truth of the matter is, this is the kind of this is the kind of pride, self righteousness that was rampant in his church. And he's trying to bring them down a couple of notches. And he's saying, he's saying, hey, God has chosen the foolish things. He doesn't need you and your great wisdom. He didn't need me and my great spirituality, or what I think is my great spirituality. He says, You got it backwards, guys. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base, that's lower, the base things of the world, the things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, the things which are not to bring to not things that are. And, you know, it's, in our first section we saw, in the chapter we saw in a relationship they were they were tagging spirituality and, and making each other more spiritual. God always you're telling them now that that's not what God uses. God doesn't want you to work at being, uh, knowing how spiritual you are. God wants you to always know how weak you are, how worthless you are, and then put it in a proper perspective uh, that God uses you in spite of yourself. And, uh, you know, and it's all true down through history. You hear me talk about George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. They were two great preachers. And God literally used them to forge and to shape uh, this country. But I got some news for you. You can find hundreds and hundreds of books about Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. And people take a, a trip to New England. I've stood in both their churches where they preached, I found the Boston Common spot where Whitfield preached, and 30,000 people got saved one time. And we make so much of that. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but you also have to keep it in balance. Let me tell you something. For every Whitfield and for every Jonathan Edwards, there was 300,000 guys out there that nobody ever knew who they were that were tearing it up for the Lord. But we don't see that, you see. In other words, we put the emphasis on these two guys, and I'm not saying they weren't great guys. I'm also saying they did not do it by themselves. And you look at a church and you say, Why, oh, he's a great pastor. You know what? He may be a great pastor, but what makes that church great is not him, it's the people that are underneath him that are doing what the Bible says. It's a team effort. I think of Martin Luther, who tore up Europe with the Reformation, John Calvin, who tore up Scotland, and John Knox, who tore up Lee Summit when he built John Knox University <laughs> or, or out there. You do understand that the reason why that's called John Knox Village is because they are Presbyterians who put that together. So that they named it after the founder of the Presbyterian church, which is George, uh, John, uh, George, uh, John Knox, yeah. Who later built a fort in Kentucky, which is Fort Knox. (laughs) No, he didn't. But anyway, you look at those guys who tore up Europe, but yet, You can read a 1,000 books on each one of them, but I guarantee you there were 500,000 Anabaptists and Waldendians who nobody wrote anything about, who never wrote anything themselves, and nobody even knows who they are today. God takes the base things. You know, and through the Bible, it's the same way. You know, the world got so wicked in Genesis chapter 6 and God's going to come down and wipe it out. God says, I'm going to wipe it out. All man is sinful and I'm sick and tired of it. And you might think that God was going to send a nuclear disaster. God was going to send a a host of angels and they're going to slaughter them and cut them up with little pieces with big swords. And, you know, God's going to send fire-breathing dragons and God was going to come down and just nuke the whole place. No, 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 no. He just winked and it rained. Rain. Rain. Not a little rainfall. 40 days and 40 nights is not a little rain, but it was just rain. It was just rain. I mean, nothing, I mean, everybody sat there and they talked about how powerful, you know what, You you think you're so powerful and really big and really got it all together and then a tornado comes through and shows you how powerless you really are. You know, they don't do it anymore, but you know what they used to call them in the insurance business way, way, way back when? They used to call them acts of God because people realized that that's what God does. Obviously, we need to watch The Wizard of Oz and get, see this thing, how it fits. But it's it's this it, he just made it rain. In Genesis chapter 11, the whole world got wicked again. God said, I'm going to fix them. You would have thought God come down and done some tremendous thing. You know what he did? Just change the language. And the guy was up on the top level, needed some more rivets, looked down to the guy on the next level, and he said, hey, send me up some more rivets. And by the time it got down to him, God changed it and it went back up to him, and the guy said, your mother's the ugliest thing I ever saw in my life, you know, and so he threw the rivets at him. In 20 minutes, there was a fight, and they all broke up and went to different ways, and God just fixed it just like that. He takes the base things, He takes the little things. We talked about it the other night. Somebody asked this question in Bible study. In fact, I don't know who it was, but I, I, I took you and I showed you how with, with, with David and Goliath. It was was Saul that should have fought him, but David's the guy who went out and fought him. Why? Because it's the foolish things, the weak things, the base things. In Judges chapter 7, it was Gideon 300. It had 32,000 guys. It was already outnumbered. God cut him down to 300 men and then whipped the Midianites. Why? Because God takes the foolish things. God established the nation of Israel it wasn't the first king Saul. He was the great tall guy that was stood head and shoulders above everybody else. It was the little runt David that God wanted. Jesus Himself. They, one of the reasons why they rejected Jesus because they said there was no prophet from Galilee because Galilee was the least of the cities where he came from. How do you see it in modern day Christianity? It won't be. My old father and Lord, Mel Shabaka, he used to say, and it's a great saying, he used to say, everybody in Christianity today wants to be the main chandelier in the ballroom. He said, we don't need any more main chandeliers in the ballroom. We just need some light bulbs on the back porch. It won't be the great chandeliers that shine on the judgment seat of Christ. It'll be the light bulbs on the back porch. That's the way God does it. It's the way he's always done it. That's the way he always does it. You know, there's a great principle found in First Samuel chapter 16, and uh, it really defines the idea of chapter 1, verses 25 uh, down through here, uh, through 31, and uh, it's the story of God anointing David as king. It's a great little story in the Bible. And if you remember that story, you remember that uh, God uh, uh, says to Samuel, I, uh, you know, I'm done with Saul, I want to anoint a king. And uh, he says, okay, where do you want to get him from? He says, go down to the house of Jesse. So they go down to the house of Jesse, and Jesse's got a number of sons. And uh, Samuel says, God sent me down here, and now that you're one of your boys, he's going to pick a king. So Jesse gets all excited as the boys all dress up, wash up, get all cleaned up, you know. And the Bible says that one by one, they come before Samuel and the Lord. And Samuel's got a little checkoff card there. And this guy, boy, this guy's look good-looking guy. He's tall. He's strong. What about him? God said, uh-uh. Next guy comes through. Boy, this guy has looked like he's smart. How about him? Uh-uh. One by one, they all passed before Jesse, and God rejected every one of them. Samuel's kind of perplexed. And he says to Jesse, you got any more, boys? Because God said this is where he was going to get it from. But everybody here, God said, no. You got any more kids? He said, oh, yeah, we got one little runt way out there watching the sheep, but I certainly didn't think you'd want him. Samuel said, go get him. And who that little guy was? It was David. And when he walked in that thing, God said, that's the man right there. Made him king right on the spot. You see, out of that is a great verse in verse 7. 16, 7. It says this, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, nor on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Amen. David's one of the great examples in the Bible of one of the little cliches that we like to use all the time, that it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. And um, it's a, that's David. David was the one that nobody should have picked. Nobody would have personally looked at and gave 10 cents. God said, he's the man. And I want to tell you something. This is why marriages fail. This is why relationships fail. This is why churches fail. And this is why Christians get themselves in the messes they get in because we're forever looking on the outside of the appearance of it, never seeing how it really is on the inside. You meet Mr. Wright, who's got all the ripple muscles in the right place or a six-pack, and a little 40 years later, a six-pack turned into a keg. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and you think he's the greatest guy in the world until six months or a year after you're married, you wonder where this bozo came from. <laughs> oh, don't laugh, ladies. I'm coming down your avenue next. <laughs> and you meet Bonnie Boutique, you know, and she's got, uh, you know, everything you could ever want in a woman, and she's the most beautiful woman in the world, and then you get married to her, and about two years later, you find out you just married the Wicked Witch of the West, South, North, South, East, and West, you see? <laughs> Why? Why do relationships not work? Because you don't take time. We all do the same thing. We are geared to look at things and then make our decision on the basis of how good it looks. And that's a fundamental biblical principle that will get you into trouble every time, every time. You ever notice we don't have any formal way of joining this church? I have a people ask about that. How do you join this church? I don't know. <laughs> Never thought about it. <laughs> I had a guy call me who left our church a while back and he, he says, uh, my pastor won't accept us without a letter from your church. I said, I said, okay. So I wrote a letter. I said, dear mom, uh, good to hope you're doing well. And uh, he didn't say what kind of letter. He just said they needed a letter. <laughs> Because in most Baptist churches, got to, that's how they control you. That's how they find out where you go. And they, you've got to have a letter. You need, in most Baptist churches, when you join a church, you have to come down the thing down there and kneel down and somebody prays with you, which is maybe not a bad thing. I don't know. But it's a thing where you, the pastor always asks, how are you coming? <laughs> uh, on my feet, walking, yes. I was going to bring the car, but the aisle's not wide enough. No, no, how are you coming? Are you coming by letter? You're coming by baptism? By statement of faith. See, they cover all the bases. Letter means that you're coming from another church and you have a letter on file that you were a member of that church. Statement of faith or baptism is you just got saved and you just got baptized, so now we're going to take you in. Letter of faith is you never don't have a letter anywhere and, and, or you don't want to give it up, <laughs> and so you just sign on a statement of your own faith. That's so stupid. It's just stupid. I mean, to me, that's just a waste of time. Most churches have, have two rules. They, they have an, an active role and an inactive role. And if you talk to most pastors, they'll say, uh, well, uh, you'll say, well, how many of your church are running? Well, we have uh, 440,000 on, on, our, on one roll, but then on our active role, we have six. <laughs> you see, they count all the people that used to come to church that don't come anymore, and they put them on an inactive role. Now, that's so if you'll go to a fellowship meeting and you really get your rear end in a bind that you can kind of fudge and go to anyone you want. And, you know, a guy asked me one time, he said, you do don't, you don't have an inactive list? I said, no. I said, we only have one active list. I said, that is people involved in ministry. Everybody else, I don't even care where they're at. God only recognizes one thing in the Bible. It's for you to get saved, get involved, grow up spiritually, and then get involved giving back to God what he gave to you. Where do you get this idea, well, I'm inactive? Really? That means you're dead, You're not inactive. You were at the Royals game last week. You played basketball the other night. You were out here running around the street. You're not inactive. You just don't want to do what God wants you to do. Somebody said, how do you join your church? You figure it out. You figure it out. I mean, you come here. This is what you get fed. This is what you need. Then this is where you're at. You find somebody better to do, take care of you, and help you grow, take care of your problems, then go there. It, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not going to play the silly little game of coming down, signing the thing, and then six months later you decided to go get a better deal. Hey, if this isn't what God wants you to have, and it ain't in your heart where this is where you need to be, and you can't grow here, and you can find someplace else better to grow, then you know what? Go ahead and do it. And I've had people say, "Well, you know what? We're leaving because this is not where the church for me." You know where they're going today? They're in St. Mattress. <laughs> They're in a constant state of prayer. <laughs> They're on the St. Mattress today. In other words, they don't want to go anywhere. That's okay. It didn't matter. I'm not interested. I never, I, I, and I tell you this all the time. As a Christian, you need to learn not to focus on what you don't have because that'll kill you all the time. Just focus on what you do have. I've known pastors that spend their whole day worrying about people here, worrying about this, worrying about that. Who people, you know, that that uh, chasing people who don't want to get caught and and, and they forsake everybody in their church that's there wanting to learn. And I, I, I tell you, I personally believe with the judgment seat of Christ, there'll be some things that we'll all lose rewards over simply for the fact that we were too strong in our own. I'm not talking about strong in the faith. I'm not talking about strong in the Bible. I'm talking about strong in ourselves. So he's making this to the church at Corinth because they're all puffed up of how great and spiritual they are in their spiritual pecking order, and he's telling them in the second part of this chapter, I got some news for you boys, that's not how God does it. He takes the foolish things, the base things, the things that are despised, and that's what he does. And the reason why he does it that way, let's finish reading that verse. Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence but of him are in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorify, let him glory in the Lord. He wants God, wants his son to get the honor and glory out of everything that he does. And that's why he's trying to deal with them. Now, let's look at chapter 2. Chapter 2. Now, in this chapter... Oh, we see another issue here. Let's read chapter 2, pick it up in verse 7 and come on down to verse 16 here. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now that's a great verse in verse 10, but we do not have time to talk about it today. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. You see, he's saying here, what he's getting ready to do, he's setting them up and saying that there, man has a spirit that always goes toward the world. God has a spirit that always goes toward God. With man's spirit will come worldly wisdom. With God's spirit will come godly wisdom. And this church now, we're going to begin to see, is putting its emphasis on worldly wisdom and not godly wisdom. Let's read on here. For we, have not received, for we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual uh, uh, things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Well, that's a great passage here. And uh, uh, what he's saying here is this church has been operating on the worldly wisdom of men and not on the wisdom of God. So in chapter 2, he tries to get them back online and understand the true wisdom of God is more important uh, than man's wisdom. And boy, do, do I see it all the time today. You know, there's a great study in the Old Testament. It's a great study. And it's found over there in Exodus chapter 18. It's really, and I'm kind of surprised, it's really nobody ever on a Bible study has ever asked this question. And I've always kind of thought it was, you know, it, it, maybe it's just not a, you would read it and you wouldn't have any questions. I don't know. But what happens is this. This is the story where Moses, uh, who now has a father-in-law named Jethro. And Jethro pulls Moses aside, and here's what he says in verse 19. He says, Hearken now unto my voice, and I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. Now, Jethro gives him eight pieces of advice. And I must confess to you, all my life as a Christian, uh, well, since I moved to Kansas City, anyhow, every pastor I've ever heard, every speaker I've ever heard, and in any seminar to help young preachers, I've, this has always been held up and told that this is a great, this is a great thing. This is how preachers uh, should do. You get advice. And Jethro's advice to Moses was really good. And yet, when you study it out in the Bible, every piece of information that Jethro gave him was against what God had told him to do. Now, I'm not against getting advice. I've had men in my life that I went to for advice and still do. And I'm not saying you shouldn't get advice, but what I am saying is you better get advice off the guy who's already doing it the right way in the book. Or otherwise, you're going to get into some problems. And this is what's happened today. Now, I know that most of you probably are not old enough or not plugged in enough to the system of Christianity, and thank God for that. But I grew up in it. I saw it. It helped forge my mindset about the way I look at things, and it's been a very valuable educational process in my life. But I've watched how that, that young men will gravitate, pastors will gravitate to some big-time guy uh, and because he's got a big church and because he's got a big crowd, that you're going to find that all Christianity kind of follows this mindset. Most of you don't know who Jack Hiles is. Jack Hiles is gone now to home be with the Lord. But he was a pastor in Hammond, Indiana. And Jack Hiles was a great preacher, great preacher. And back in the 70s and back in the, in the 80s, Jack Hiles had a, had a Sunday school or church that ran 10,000 people. And everybody, everybody in Christianity, pastors, Jack Kyle was their model. And they wanted to have a church like Jack Hiles. It, it didn't matter what kind of church God wanted you to have. And so they, he would have pastor schools. And they would have pastor schools, and they would pack it out with 4,000 pastors. And those pastors would come to learn how Jack Hile's built this great Church of ten thousand people, so you can go back and build a church of ten thousand people and I'll tell you it was it was I've seen so many guys over the years you know that look at that and look what some guy does and think that that's what they've got to do, and then gets off track of what God wants them to do because you're not that guy and they gave these great things they never told anybody that that probably five thousand of those people were kids and that they were running buses one way, 75 miles, 150 miles round trip to bring in three or 4,000 bus kids. So without the bus kids there, you wouldn't have 10,000. But you see, it was an ego thing back then. And so all churches got into a bus ministry. And I've known guys that, you know, they got into bus ministries to get kids to come, and, uh, you know, it, it, helps them, it helps the appearance of their attendance. It doesn't matter that you're not doing anything with them. It doesn't matter that you're bringing kids off the street, and I'm all for that, but you're bringing kids into a situation, and they just tear your church apart. Nobody teaches them anything. We just count them and send them on away. way. I knew one bus guy that would pay, they, he was in the middle of a Sunday school campaign, and he was the bus driver, and he wanted to win. He paid kids 50 cents to ride the bus to come to church. Well, he packed it out. Well, I guess so. I'd cut my legs off, and I'd ride for that. But that's the kind of stuff we got into. And then a little bit later on, Jerry Falwell, who has gone home to be with the Lord. He was the leader of the pack. And I remember Thomas Road Baptist Church. They went on television. And Jerry Falwell was a a great leader in Christianity. But everybody wanted to be like him. So what they did was that, that churches all across the country, they refashioned their auditorium to look like Thomas Road. They got the same pulpit that Jerry Falwell had. And they really thought from going there that, and this is where the idea of building great mausoleum churches that look like the Taj Mahal is what people are really looking for today. This is where it started. I remember in Redneck, Raytown. I live in Raytown. Raytown was, I remember, I remember a time in Raytown when I first moved here back in the 70s. If you were black and you drove through Raytown, you got stopped by the police. They were racist as could be. They are still as redneck as can be. I mean, God loved them, I, I, but you would not think that a little redneck place like Raytown would have great issues. I remember when First Baptist Church of Raytown was down inside Raytown City Proper. And it was a nice little building. They were there for a while, and then they, they built the facility they have now. I want to tell you, every fundamental Baptist church in this city, just was sick with envy. Why, why, why would they have something like that? Why, look at, why can't we have something like that? And everybody then tried to do, well, we need to start, I'll tell you what, we need to start buying up all the homes around us so we can spread out. And they start, They quit calling it a church, and now it's a campus. We're going to dedicate the left wing of our campus. A what? campus, campus. I must be sitting on it wrong. I don't find it in my concordance anywhere. Campus, campus. I keep coming up with church, but no campus, campus. Everybody wanted to be like those guys, and then it it spread. You know, it's it, it spread everywhere. Now we then we had a church over there, the Church of the Insurrection. Everybody wanted to be like them. Ten times. I'm not fighting it. Go to church, and then they got a liquor store. They own the thing where the liquor store is. You can go in there and get, get some real spirits on the way home if you want to. But everybody wanted to be like that. Then Jerry Johnston came on the scene. Everybody wanted to be like that. Jerry Johnson you know those guys, they started to take the name Baptist off their church. So everybody started to do that. And it's, it's a thing where it's that keeping up with the Joneses. And when when Jethro... When Jethro tells him these eight things, Jethro's a hundred million light years from where God wants him to be. He says in verse 19, Hearken now unto my voice, I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee, but thou for thy people to God word. Hearken unto my counsel? Really? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 10 and Exodus chapter 30 verse 11 says that Moses and God spoke face to face. What does he need Jethro for? Jethro, were you at the burning bush? I didn't see you there. Were you going for coffee? In fact, when you lay this thing out, all the time he's getting advice from Jethro, God ceases to speak to Moses. If you're paying attention, God has no face to face contact with Moses when he starts to take advice from Jethro. Jethro was never included in God's program for Israel, it was God and Moses in every piece of advice that Jethro gives him, you can go into the Bible and find out where it's contrary to what God tells him. And it's those same mindset today that was in the church at Corinth, that they forsake the godly principles of the Bible. You know, young pastors today, I don't understand them. First of all, they've been taught through this system. I had a friend of mine that, uh, was a great pastor, had a great church, Bible-believing church. And he got caught up in this, and it's all this new stuff, you know. These guys sit around, and these guys that are the evangelicals, you know, they come up with new stuff. And it gets a crowd. But that's, that's not necessarily the final analysis of success of your ministry is how many people do you have. But that's where it's at today. I had a friend of mine that was a it was a pastor, and he he, he knew better than this. And he he, he and I got to say that he lived in the shadow of his father, who was a great preacher and a great pastor. So he goes out on his own and he starts doing the weirdest stuff you've ever seen in your life. He starts doing all this stuff to that's completely off the wall, and he winds up at the end of the day. Given up the King James Bible so we can reach people. And his dad is one of the strongest King James Bible people you ever met in your life. It all comes down to we want something new. Pastors today want to come to their people and they want to say to them, This is mine. I figured this out. I found this. Look at me. I got this. You know what they do? They forsake the good, solid Bible teaching. I know some pastors in town that their idea of the book of Revelation my two labs know more about the book of Revelation than they do. They're as screwed up and fouled up in teaching that book as you could ever want to be. But you know why they are? Because they want, to, they want something new. They want to come to their people and say, I, I, this is this way I was taught, but this isn't really the way it is. Look what God showed me. Now, folks, I got some news for you, and this may be a heart-rendering, breaking headline for you. I really don't ha- when I come into the pulpit, no matter when it is, Thursday night, Bible study, or Sunday morning, I really don't have anything new. I just preach what I have seen work for 40 years of my life. This idea that I got to have some new advice, I got to get something from Jethro over here. Why well, wouldn't take something from a guy named Jethro anyhow? <laughs> Sounds like he had to be a Lamar Donut guy or something. I don't, Jethro, yeah. But this idea, you know what, you've got to have something new. You've got to have something exciting. I'm going to take what the old guys taught and I'm going to change it because I've got deeper things I've seen. You're out of your mind. You've got the Bible taught the same way in Revelation or Genesis or, or Isaiah or Jeremiah and it's been taught that way for, for God knows how long, 40 years of my life. And the guy that taught me was taught to him that way and goes right back down through there, and now you are gonna find something different? You're out of your mind. You're nuts. You don't have to have something new. Preach what works. And what works is the line of the Bible. And that Bible is, whether you know it or not, folks, that Bible has pretty well been laid out and, and spaded out of how it should be taught and what it means where you find it. This new stuff that all these guys are finding today, you're nuts. You'd be a deacon in the church at Corth just like that. <laughs> and now they get these ideas, and so they come to the place where they, they, they don't teach anymore. They preach. You know Why? Because people tell them, the Jethro's tell them that preaching turns people off. People won't come to hear a man scream and yell and preach. They want a man to teach. Teaching sues, preaching disrupts. Well, I must tell you, we all need a little disruption in our life from time to time, and Sunday morning seems like to be a good day to do it. Amen. You come to hear me preach and let me rip you up, I'll go buy you a smoothie afterwards. Will that make you feel better? You know what they tell them? They tell them, hey, people don't want to come to church on Sunday anymore. So what you do, they want their day. So have church on Saturday night. And so you'll have churches now in this city. They'll have Sunday morning church service, and then they'll have a Sunday Saturday night church service for those who don't want to come up on Sunday morning. Now, that sounds nice, except the Bible says in the book of Acts, remember the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. It says they met together on the first day of the week, not Saturday night. I don't know what to tell you. You think I wouldn't like to sleep in on a Sunday morning too? We try to accommodate everybody today. We try to take Christianity when it has an absolute standard by which it stands for, and then we try to tone it down so you'll like it, so you'll come, and when you come, bring your money. You see, this is the problem. This is what's wrong. This is what Jethro did to Moses, and this is what they do today with the Jethro's that are out there. And now they have these churches where... And these are my pet peeves. So let me get out of my system. I need to throw up too. You talked to me last week, got it out of your system. Today's my day. You went to these churches, you don't even have to bring your Bible anymore. We'll put the Bible verses up on the screen for you so you can watch it up there. Don't need your Bible. Now, let me tell you something. That sounds neat, and people say, well, that's really nice. That's convenient. No, 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 no. That is the trick of the devil because you can't ever, you should never go anywhere without your Bible, and you, uh, when you start putting up on a thing that you can read it here and carrying your Bible to church is not important, you watch what the devil does with that. I'm telling you. I had some people tell me they went to a church service on Easter and the, and the, the pastor, the thing started out, the lights went out, the music built up. The lights came up. Smoke come out from under the pulpit. And as, as, as the worship singers came out, man, I said, you sure you were in a starlight theater? <laughs> or Mickey G's or some of those places? I know pastors that, they, that they'll, they'll, they'll use the King James Bible from the pulpit, but they'll never make an issue of the word of God any place from the pulpit. You know why? Don't want to offend you. They'll let you bring an ASV as long as you put your money in the plate. They don't care if you have an NIV as long as you put your money in the plate. I don't want your money. I want you to get the book that God has because that's the only thing that's going to solve your life problems. The rest will take care of itself. You know, I'll tell you what, the Jethro, I mean, that's, uh, and sometime you, we're not going to do it this morning, but sometime on a Bible study, you ought to see the eight things he tells him to do and then see how they correct themselves through there. No, we got big bands today. We got light shows today. We got worship singers. We got, let me tell you something. There's no man, there's no program that could ever build a church better than just the Bible and what God told you to do. I mean, you could have everything you got going and all the money in the world and a $50 million sound system and the singers from wherever and the big buses and all this stuff, but the Bible says, if I be lifted up, I will draw them in unto me and there's nothing that ever beats that in history. That's what God intended for it to do. Now, that's what he says in verse 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Now, you know, that's just where it's at. And look at verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Well, that's a good verse. You know what that spiritual things with spiritual means? It means that you judge everything that you have in your life comparing Scripture with Scripture. The only real spiritual thing you have is the Word of God. We've already told it's the mind of Christ. Let this mind be it was also in Christ Jesus. Now, when he says comparing spiritual things with spiritual, he's talking about when you have a decision to make or you hear a Jethro in your life or you're faced with the things out there that the world wants you to do and it might be worldly wisdom, and you don't want to get it into your church, he's an easy mode for it. Just get you out of Bible and compare Scripture with Scripture. Somebody says, we have our church service on Sunday night. What's the Bible say? What does the Bible say? It says they met on the first day of the week. Somebody says, well, we don't even have to carry our Bible to the church. They just put it over there. What does the Bible say? Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I may not sin against thee. Have it with you. Have it with you. No soldier ever goes into combat without his weapon except Laodicean soldiers. Then he says in verse 15, this is another great principle. He that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself judges no man. Judge not least to be judged. Shouldn't judge people. Shouldn't judge people. Well, let me give you some Bible. He that is spiritual judges all things. Notice you don't judge people, you judge things. I don't judge you. You do what you want to do, but as far as my life is concerned and where I'm with God, I will judge the things that you do if it'll work for me or not. I won't judge you for it. You want to go and get drunk tonight? Go ahead and do it. I don't care. Shoot yourself, man. Doesn't bother me a bit. I'm not supposed to judge anybody for anything, and I don't, but you do have a right if you're spiritual in the Bible to judge all things, and some things that you do may not work for me. Some things I do may not work for you doesn't make you a bad person. doesn't make me a bad person. It just means that, you know what? You have to come back to it and make sure you've got a biblical principle for all you do. You want a drink? Go ahead and go to that verse in Acts. It said, Paul, stop by the three taverns. It'll work for you. <laughs> work for you, wonderful. You see, he says here, he says, for he that is spiritual judges all things. The Word of God, when you have the principles, you now have the ability to look at something, everything in life. And find out if it's the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God. And if it's the wisdom of the world, stay away from it. If it's the wisdom of God, embrace it. That's what he's saying. Then a great verse in verse 16, and we'll hold up here today. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, that's a verse that says, How are we supposed to know? How are we supposed to get our instructions? How are we supposed to be instructed of the Lord? At all of this stuff. Now, keep in mind, he's talking about the church at Corinth and all of this. I'm making the parallels back and forth for you and for me and churches and Christianity because they're there. I already told you when we started that the, these seven churches he writes to are the personalities of the churches you're going to find all down through church history, certainly today. And when you look at this thing and you get to that last verse down there, it says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. That's how you do it. You know how you know what wisdom you're operating in? You have that, you know for sure, based on the Bible that God gave you, which is the mind of Christ. And then he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The Word of God, comparing Scripture with Scripture, spiritual with spiritual. Don't do anything without a biblical principle of any great degree in your life. Always understand, be able to figure out what is the worldly wisdom versus what a man says. And, and stick with the Bible. Stick with the way the Bible's been taught. It's, t- it's tried and tested. You're not going to come up with some new idea. You're not going to come up with some new thing that nobody ever saw. Give me a break. And when you get into the pulpit, well, at least when I get into the pulpit, I'm aware of one thing. I got nothing new to give you. Whatever I give you, somebody gave, the the guy that gave it to me, and somebody gave it to him, and gave it to him, and gave it right on down the line. And that's the way it works, folks. That's how you stay between the white lines. But you see, we don't have a sense of, of what our heritage is in believing and teaching the Bible. So we get into the book of whatever and we get all fangled up because of the fact we, we don't understand. I'm telling you again, you should never try to study a book of the Bible no matter what it may be till you first sit down and you have all the ins and outs about what that book is going to do for you, what it's intended to do, how it, the concept of it is, and then you go after it. Otherwise, you get in the middle of that thing and you just make something completely added in there. And those are the things that the church at Corinth did. Well, We got to two chapters today. That was not my plan, but that was God's plan. So we'll pick it up next week. Let's have a word of prayer and uh, check out the Bibles back there. Please take the